This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Linda Milishkin, who's a professor of medical oncology at Peter McCollum Cancer Center in Victoria, Australia, and the principal investigator of the adjuvant chemotherapy following chemoradiation as primary treatment for locally advanced cervical cancer compared to chemoradiation alone, the randomized phase three outback trial. Uh, this uh, important trial was recently presented at the ASCO 2021 meeting. So we're really very, very excited uh, to speak with you, uh, Linda. And thank you so much once again for your time. It's a pleasure. So Linda, I wanted to first uh, start by uh, describing to our audience um, uh, what is the Outback trial and uh, what were the primary and uh, secondary objectives of the study? Yes, yeah, so the Outback trial, as you said, was a, a randomized phase three trial um, led by um, an academic group and with international participation. And it was a trial to test the value of giving additional adjuvant chemotherapy so-called out the back of standard chemo radiation to women who had locally advanced cervical cancer. And the primary objective was to determine if adding four cycles of additional chemotherapy actually could improve the five-year overall survival rate. And we looked at a number of secondary objectives and this included looking, thing, looking at the progression-free survival rate as well as the patterns of acute and long-term toxicities, um, the patterns of disease recurrence, as well as the quality of life outcomes between the two different arms. Great. And, um, and Linda, what, what did we have so far in the literature prior to this study sort of supporting the exploration of this question of adding additional chemotherapy after chemoradiation? So I guess what we knew from the literature was that standard treatment was chemoradiation with low-dose cisplatin, um, but we knew from the literature that still about one in three patients potentially would relapse after this treatment and that women often die due to the development of distant metastatic disease. Um, and we knew from a big meta-analysis with individual patient data that was done in 2008. There, there are a couple of trials in there that gave two more cycles of chemotherapy following the chemo radiation, And there was a suggestion with those two trials that there was additional um, benefit seen. Um, and there was a really influential trial um, performed by Duanus Gonzalez et al. in South America that was published in 2011, where they gave... Um, cisplatin plus gemcitabine, both during the chemoradiation but also for two cycles uh, following that. And again, with that approach, um, they found a 9% improvement in progression-free survival, which was their primary endpoint. Um, but there, there was some criticism of that trial because the, um, the endpoint was changed from overall survival to PFS because they were not able to follow women as long as they might have liked. Um, and also there was quite a lot of toxicity and it wasn't really clear whether it was adding the gemcitabine, you know, during the radiation or, or out the back that was having the benefit. And so this was one of the reasons why we um, designed the Outback trial with our international group that you know well, Pedro, the mm -hmm. gynecologic cancer intergroup. Sure. 
So um, with that, then, I'd like to um, ask you if you can describe the the two uh, treatment arms of the study. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about um, why you selected the combination of uh, carboplatinum and paclitaxel as adjuvant uh, therapy after chemo radiation. Yes, so many people um, have asked that, why didn't we use gemcitabine? Um, but I guess we chose carboplatinum paclitaxel based on data from metastatic disease where we think that platinum taxane it seems to be the most active combination. It's our standard regimen that we use in the metastatic setting. So usually it makes sense to try and bring your best regimen um, into the adjuvant setting. Mm -hmm. And um, we were not convinced that it was required to use more chemotherapy during the radiation because there's been a number of, you know, phase one studies doing that and, you know, mostly adding additional cytotoxics has mostly added more toxicity. So we thought the cleanest design was to give four cycles of chemotherapy following the, the chemo radiation and use our best um, regimen in that setting. Completely, yes, uh, makes sense, absolutely. Uh, so now um, I was wondering if you could uh, describe uh, a little bit uh, regarding the statistical design and, and we're specifically interested if uh, you can talk a little bit about the protocol amendment uh, that I understand was uh, performed to increase the sample size. Yeah, so absolutely. When we first um, finalised the protocol, uh, we designed it to have 780 participants, which should have given us good power to see um, an absolute improvement of 10% in overall survival at five years if the adjuvant chemotherapy was effective. And at that time, we're expecting um, an overall survival rate at five years of 63% in the control arm. Um, but the, the trial did take some years to accrue. And um, over that time, we saw um, two things happening. The first was that um, we did see a significant rate of non-adherence with the adjuvant chemotherapy, where um, at the time that we did the protocol amendment, 16% of women in the trial were not having any of the adjuvant chemotherapy that they'd been assigned to. Um, although we, you know, we tried to work with the investigators to, you know, discourage them from enrolling women who didn't want to commit to having the adjuvant chemotherapy, et cetera, that rate seemed to be remaining kind of pretty steady um, and not going down at all. And the other thing that um, happened was that, um, our patients overall were doing better than expected and in fact the event rate was tracking about 10% better than we expected. Um, and so um, I had um, advice from the Independent Data Safety Monitoring Committee and I'm really grateful to the people that worked on that committee um, in consultation with the statistician to suggest that we increase the sample size to 900 participants to kind of allow for that more than expected dropout and that would still give us enough power to look for an 8% improvement in overall survival at five years. Great. Um, and, of course, obviously highly anticipated uh, study. And uh, what were the main findings of the study? What were your results? Yeah, the main findings were that, unfortunately, the five-year overall survival rate was nearly identical between the two arms, 71 versus 72% um, at five years. So again, you know, much better than expected when we first designed the protocol in both arms. 
Um, and there also wasn't much difference in progression-free survival, although if you look at the curves, they do seem to separate a bit initially, but then they definitely come together by the five-year mark, so that it was 61% in the control arm and 63% uh, with the adjuvant chemotherapy arm. Um, and as expected, we saw you know some increased toxicity from the chemotherapy and some um, short-term impact on quality of life from giving the additional adjuvant therapy. And the other thing we were hoping to see was that there would be some you know reduction in distant recurrence relapse mm -hmm. with the adjuvant chemotherapy, but in fact we didn't see it. It was um, it was pretty similar between the two arms, eleven percent with the standard arm versus 9% um, with, the, with the additional adjuvant chemotherapy arm. And, and I was wondering, the, the percentage of patients that completed the plan uh, chemotherapy and radiation, was it similar in both groups? Yeah, it was very similar. And I, I think that was probably one of the reasons why we saw better outcomes than expected overall is because, you know, we were using academic centres predominantly in the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand that obviously very good at giving um, the standard chemo radiation and have all, all their equipment so that, yeah, the radiation dose delivery was very similar um, between the two arms. Mm -hmm. If we if we kind of applied a very strict definition and said that you have to have all the cisplatin, all the external beam and all the brachytherapy, then we had 77% completing all of that in, in both arms. And, and I understand you also did uh, an additional sensitivity analysis to evaluate the effects of adjuvant chemotherapy in those who did and did not complete the chemoradiation. Um, what were the findings from, from that analysis? Yeah, so there's been much discussion about that and I guess we're still thinking about this point, like what kind of analysis could we do to account for the fact that we had 22% of women not have any of the planned adjuvant chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, and some people have said, well, you know, why didn't you just do a per-protocol analysis and just look at everyone who had all the adjuvant chemotherapy? But the statisticians tell me that, you know, that would be quite a biased analysis because you'd be picking the good players from the adjuvant chemotherapy arm, but there's no way to kind of pick the similar good players from the chemoradiation arm. So um, what we did was an analysis based on whether or not people completed their initial chemoradiation. Uh, and this was because that seemed to be the strongest predictor of whether or not people went on to have the adjuvant chemotherapy. If you didn't finish your initial chemoradiation, you were three times more likely not to have any adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, so when we did that analysis, we found for the women who completed chemoradiation, the hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.81 with an absolute difference of 3%. Um, and interestingly, it was kind of reversed for those patients who didn't complete their chemoradiation. The the overall survival was actually 9% worse in um, those women who received the adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, and there was a similar pattern for progression-free survival. Mm. But um, when the statisticians look at the interaction p-value, um, they suggest that the differences between the subgroups are not really greater than expected by chance alone. So 
So I guess even with that sensitivity analysis, we couldn't show any very convincing effect of the adjuvant chemotherapy, which is obviously disappointing. Yeah. And um, Linda, you mentioned previously, and obviously in, in a setting where we're adding additional treatment, um, the topic of adverse events is, uh, is very important. So um, can you talk a little bit about the rate of adverse events in, in both arms of the study and also what were the most common side effects that were encountered? Yeah, so the common side effects were, you know, all the things that we uh, know to expect when we give adjuvant carboplatin paclitaxel to, you know, ladies with ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer. So... Um, in particular, hematological toxicity was increased as well as uh, hair loss, tiredness, myalgia, peripheral neuropathy, um, and GI toxicities like nausea and vomiting. Um, but having said that, I think the toxicity was, was generally pretty manageable. Um, we only saw a 2% rate of febrile neutropenia, and I was quite interested to see that that was actually the same in both arms. So women certainly get neutropenia with standard chemoradiation as well. Mm. Um, and we didn't have any study-related death, which was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and importantly, we didn't see any sign of the sort of toxicities in the pelvis related to the radiation being increased either acutely or um, beyond one year. Right. So beyond one year, the only real difference between the arms was that there were still more women that had sensory peripheral neuropathy um, than those in the control arm, mm-hmm. and the and the and the peripheral neuropathy was in the in the adjuvant treatment arm, I, I presume. Yeah, yeah, it was seven yeah. percent mm-hmm. at, at twelve years grade two, which is a little bit um, less than I think was seen in the Portec three mm-hmm. study. And I guess we kind of learned from the Portec three study that that was likely to be a problem, and that was one of the reasons why we used a slightly attenuated dose of. Paclitaxel in the study and only gave 155 milligrams per meter squared rather than 175. Okay, and um, another uh, point of assessment, and I, I, you know, certainly anticipate reading more about it in the uh, manuscript. You you perform a quality of life assessment also. Um, can you tell us as to the tools you used and uh, what were the results? Yeah, so we've collected really detailed information about quality of life, which is um, great, out to three years after women finish their treatment. And at this stage, we've only really looked at the most high-level results. So the data we presented was about the effect on uh, global health and quality of life using the uh, QLQC30 measure. Um, But we've also collected data from uh, the cervix cancer module from the EORTC measure and some of the specific relevant questions um, from the ovarian cancer module related to the impact of the chemotherapy. Um, we've also collected some um, detailed information about impact on psychosexual health um, and specifically tried to look at neurotoxicity using the FACT um, GOG neurotoxicity subscale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to look at this data in, in more detail. Obviously, we'll probably see that you know, other quality of life measures were also worse in the women who have the chemotherapy. But I'm hoping it'll also be able to maybe help us tease out just within the group in the study as a whole who were the women 
that seem to particularly have those, you know, long-term impacts on quality of life. Mm-hmm. You know, what exactly are they and how can we develop um, better endeavours to try and address those? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I, I, I think I saw you uh, in your presentation uh, regarding and speaking specifically about um, um, subgroup analyses and particularly patients older than 60 years. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what were the findings in that uh, group of patients? Yeah, so we did stratify um, by important um, prognostic factors such as, you know, FICO stage and whether the nodes were involved and um, whether you needed external beam radiotherapy and age as well as centre. Um, and really we couldn't um, also demonstrate much difference in those different subgroups, in, including, you know, I might have hoped that we might have seen some benefit in the node-positive patients or the mm-hmm. higher FIGO stage, but actually that wasn't really obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did see is um, some difference based on age. So women who were older than 60 seemed to do a little bit worse and seemed to do a bit better if they'd had adjuvant chemotherapy alone. Um, but I think it's important to remember that they were only 15% of the trial population. So mm-hmm. certainly a subgroup, most women were actually younger, median age was 45. Um, and, you know, does that mean that the younger women did better? Um, I think if we look numerically at some of the, the numbers, they they did do slightly better, but, you know, not actually a big change in overall survival and probably still not um, enough to justify giving adjuvant chemotherapy even to younger women. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Linda, going back to something you, you mentioned earlier, and it seemed like just over 20%, I believe it was about 22% of patients uh, randomized to getting adjuvant therapy did not um, undergo that treatment. And I was wondering if you can tell us as to what your thoughts are regarding, like, why? Why why weren't patients um, going on additional treatment if they were randomized to that group? Yeah. I mean, I think there was a range of factors. I think in many cases the patients are just kind of worn out and had enough after completing the chemo radiation. Um, it was, it, as I said before, it was associated with not getting through your initial chemo radiation, but it wasn't necessarily associated with having grade three or four toxicity during chemo radiation. But you know, it's those lower grade cumulative toxicities that make people worn out. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, also, I think women don't want to lose their hair, so we we mm. did hear a lot about women not wanting to lose their hair, even though. You know, they'd been told up front when they consented that, you know, that could be a chance. But mm-hmm. I think maybe women kind of forgot that as they then went through the first component. And then when they came to the idea of now you're going to have another three months of chemo and lose your hair, um, some decided to pull out. Um, yeah. In, 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 but I, in, in, but I also think, huh? yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to just ask you as a follow-up to that because I thought um, I heard uh, that, in uh, non-Caucasian women, uh, they were more likely not to start the adjuvant uh, chemotherapy. And I don't know if there were enough patients to make that as a conclusion as well uh, with regards to the non-compliance with uh, getting additional adjuvant treatment. Um, w- was that the case? Yeah, it was the case. Um, Non-Caucasian women um, 
who were about a quarter of the trial population were twice as likely not to have any adjuvant chemotherapy. And I was really disturbed when I um, saw that figure. We obviously didn't specifically set up the trial to collect data in, in detail, but we certainly think that there, you know, there could have been some disparities at play. Anecdotally, we heard people say that, you know, I need to go back to work or maybe women were travelling to a, um, a specialist centre to get their radiation and they just, you know, they wanted to go back home. They didn't want to keep travelling. Um, and we we also heard some women say that there was concerns about their insurance in the US. Is, mm. I think a lot of the study was during, mm-hmm. you know, the time of Obamacare and a lot of turmoil in insurance mm-hmm. coverage. So I suspect that also had some impact. Very well. Um, so now... Um, what would you say are the highlights of uh, of the study? Uh, what are the strengths? And, and what would you also recognize as limitations of the study? Yeah, I think the strength was, you know, really getting the study up and running and getting it done. It was very hard work to get this um, funding for this academic study and to complete it. And we're, you know, really grateful for the support of the the NCI and the NRG uh, to participate in the study and, and help us to complete it. So forming that international collaboration, um, I think, was very good. And it's been a pivotal study in setting up the the Cervix Cancer Research Network within the GCIG to you know try and start to do more more studies with international participation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the limitations we've talked about, such as you know. Not all women starting adjuvant chemotherapy is planned, and the outcomes overall being better than we first designed the study. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also probably a limitation that um, we confined this study, or we were limited in in where we could actually open the study, and we mostly opened it in in high income countries. There were not many women from low income countries, and mm-hmm. um, we could speculate, you know, what might have been the difference if if we had more women from low income um, countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually that that leads me to the next question. It's actually one of the questions submitted by one of the uh, um, editorial fellows from the journal, uh, and the question is: uh, most patients were from high income countries. Uh, can you speculate as to whether results would have been different? if uh, the patient accrual was balanced or was primarily from low-income countries? Yeah. I mean, I certainly think we would have got the trial done quicker. And yes. we did try hard to um, open the trial, as you know, in, in countries in South America and India, but we were mm-hmm. really hamstrung by funding and insurance complaints. So we certainly would have got the trial done quicker and the results um, out there. and. Um, it's hard to know, would there have been a difference if women were not getting quite as good radiotherapy? Um, maybe that might be one of the reasons people have speculated why the additional adjuvant chemotherapy in the Duenas Gonzalez study might have helped, but that really is just purely speculation. Yeah. And then, um, you know, obviously the when we uh, started this podcast, we talked about the idea of reducing potentially um, distant metastases uh, with the adjuvant uh, treatment. We saw that there was no difference um, in outcomes uh, between these two groups. So why do you think this might have been the case? Why do you think we saw no difference? 
Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot and I don't know that I exactly know the answer. And I think one reason was that there wasn't such a high distance relapse rate in our study as there was seen, for example, in the meta-analysis. So it was harder for the chemotherapy to see an impact. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think, you know, in other settings where we give adjuvant chemotherapy, there's been surgery done first, such as in endometrial cancer or ovarian cancer. And so maybe it's easier for the chemotherapy to impact on distant recurrence um, if there's been initial surgery and you're really just trying to treat residual, you know, microscopic cells. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Do you have any theories? Because yeah, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because as I was thinking about asking you that question, I, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually directing a question to you as it's been directed to me so many times, uh, you know, in, in the lab trial where, you know, they're, they're asking, well, why do you think you saw those results? And it's like, well, I can only tell you the results and then postulate as to the, the thoughts. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's always challenging. And I think also, um, you know, one of the things that I recall from the presentation, I believe that, you know, the, the node positive patient rate was not very high. Uh, and I wonder if that had any impact on, on the outcomes uh, as well. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, we were using the old Vigo staging system mm. and the 1B um, patients needed to have node-positive disease. So we actually had 50% in the trial population that was node-positive. Um, I know the newer adjuvant um, studies that are coming through are kind of like focusing on that high-risk population and just looking at the node-positive or high Vigo stage patients. So... It's possible, but we, we actually had pretty reasonable numbers of those patients that couldn't demonstrate a benefit. Yeah. So, Linda, I want to obviously be respectful of your time, and I wanted to ask you one last question. I usually ask this question um, with regards to, you know, how do we move forward? Um, what should be uh, the next steps, and what do you consider as the next um, strategies to evaluate in terms of adjuvant treatment in this uh, patient population? Yeah, so I think that we've probably maxed out the effect of um, chemotherapy in this setting. Although having said that, I think it will be very important to see the results of the interlace trial, which is looking at giving a short, sharp course of six weeks of neoadjuvant chemotherapy before chemoradiation. But I don't know that it's useful to continue to investigate giving further types of adjuvant chemotherapy. I think we probably need different drugs and it's really good that there have been trials ongoing while well, we've been waiting for the results of Outback uh, addressing the role of adjuvant immunotherapy. Um, and we know that approach works in lung cancer so after chemoradiation. So it'll be very interesting to see if the same applies in cervix cancer. And I think we also just need to do better in giving the standard treatments. You know, they're there's so many places around the world they don't have good access to radiotherapy or that some places don't even have radiation machines. Mm -hmm. So if we could actually give better delivery of the standard therapy all around the world, um, I think that could have a big impact on outcomes, but it's obviously not so easy to achieve. Absolutely. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Linda Milishkin. Thank you so much uh, once again. Uh, for your time. Congratulations on this great study. I uh, certainly uh, want to applaud you for all the efforts you made through the duration of the study. I was witness uh, to many times as you advocated 
for the uh, implementation and, uh, and accrual and completion of this study. So I, uh, I want to thank you for your contribution, and uh, I'm, I'm certain, obviously, for all that you have done and continue to do for patients with gynecologic cancer. Thank you. Thanks, Pedro. Lovely to talk to you.